clearly what we need to do is address parity. In 2009, 1.2% of the population of students nationally was Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. In 2019, that was only at 1.9%. We've got a long way to go. Welcome to Whose University, Whose Culture, the second of three History of University Life podcasts about making universities fit for purpose. I'm Julia Horn, Professor of History at the University of Sydney and co-convener of the History of University Life Seminar on Higher Education. In these podcasts, I talk to three authors of essays in a new publication, Australian Universities, A Conversation About Public Good. You just heard from one of the authors, Jennifer Barrett. Jennifer is Pro-Vice-Chancellor Indigenous at the University of Sydney and also the Director of the National Centre for Cultural Competence. I recently caught up with Jennifer to discuss how making universities fit for purpose for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders will strengthen our universities overall. And this seems ever so relevant now that we have a government committed to the Uluru Statement from the heart. Let's remember that the Uluru Statement is an invitation from First Nations people to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Welcome, Jennifer. It's a real delight to have you at the History of University Life podcast. Thank you, Julia. (laughs) So, Jennifer, I'd like to begin with some preliminaries. First, a very direct question, where are you from? My family are from the Northern Rivers part of New South Wales, Dungari, uh, around Kempsey, and that's on my mother's side. I grew up on Dara country in Western Sydney, and I work here on Gadigal land here at the University of Sydney. What's your role and mission as Director of the National Cultural Competence Centre at the University of Sydney? My role as director looks at a suite of programs, educational programs about cultural competence, and we work with staff here at the university. But what our our goal is, is to influence the discussion nationwide um, and across a number of other sectors around uh, building cultural competence. And what we do in that space is run programs based on research that look at how to better understand the differences and similarities, I guess, around cultures. But we look at it from a First Nations perspective first as a way to inform that. And there are two things there. One is that we believe if you get it right for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, you usually get it right for most in terms of looking at inclusion, diversity and and understanding sort of, you know, power relations within our society. But the principle around cultural competence is to be really looking at the capacity of one to reflect on your own cultural context that you come from. And by doing that, we would argue that people then are more likely to uh, be more open and and engaging with uh, cultural contexts from around, not just around the world, but particularly uh, in relation to Australia. Cultural competence, culture, requires being aware of one's own cultural values and worldview and their implications for making respectful, reflective and reasoned choices, including the capacity to imagine and collaborate across cultural boundaries. Cultural competence is ultimately about valuing diversity for the richness and creativity it brings to society. 
Now, I want to take you back actually to the younger Jennifer when you were a university student. Describe your first impressions of the university when you came there as a university student and also perhaps to get you to explore what you think has changed in those intervening minutes between when you were a student. (laughs) I was at the University of New South Wales, so um, in my undergraduate years, and I have a very distinct memory of that first day, and this is after getting up at 5.30 in the morning to catch uh, a bus, a train, and two more buses to get to campus from where I lived in Western Sydney. Um, and it was a lecture in, uh, it was a, an art history lecture and uh, it was very active. Everyone was very excited. There was a scream, you know, from from the audience, oh, we've got to take art to the masses. And, uh, and then someone said, who's the masses? What mass? You know, and then someone else said, let's take it to the Westies. And I think, hmm, I wonder what mum and dad will make of that. And I just remembered uh, thinking, that I'd sit back, listen and watch and to see what plays out. And and I saw very distinctive differences in culture amongst the student body. So that was a first memory. When I first arrived here at the University of Sydney uh, two decades ago, um, my memory of that was this is a very hierarchical institution and there were discipline hierarchies as well as cultural hierarchies. You are a Professor of Museum and Heritage Studies And I can't help but think there is actually a strong connection between all the amazing work that you've done as an academic in that area, in the area of museum and heritage studies, and the sort of work that you're now proposing through cultural competence. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, so I think it is the core driver for me in, and there has been since I went to university and the example of my first day at university where people talked about culture and I realised, oh, that's not my experience. And I realised, well, there's a lot more out there, but I also realised there were significant differences. And I think from that point, and I'd say the school that I went to, where a lot of the teachers had applied for a transfer before they'd even got to the school, it was a disadvantaged school in Western Sydney, is that I guess for me, culture is really important for democracy. And I guess what I feel like I've done is over the last few decades, <laughs> I've been looking at what that means. So I've done it in terms of looking at art making. I've looked at museums and what's in those museums. I've looked at the governance of museums and I've looked at who is in museums. When I look at what I've taught uh, over the years, there's a consistency there. But I think the important thing is that a lot of that has also been driven by conversations with students, conversations with colleagues in the museum and gallery and heritage sector, but also with communities too, in terms of these sort of ideas about culture. There are differences in in whose culture is privileged, and a lot of that is about education. In terms of your current work, can we talk about what makes a university culturally safe? especially in light of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. This is something that we'll need to be looking at in higher education as we we start to take Statement from the Heart really seriously. And 
I think what we're looking at is not just increasing the numbers of staff or students that are from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. What we're looking at is how do we acknowledge First Nations first, that we're on land that has never been ceded. What does it mean? And it's not, as I say, just about the numbers. It's about the curriculum, about uh, the diversity of staff, and I mean the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff as well. It's about our relationship to communities on all the footprints that the university has. And it's about building our capacity to work in a culturally responsive way. So it's also looking at the type of knowledge that we're including and it's looking at the disciplines that have that have had a specific impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So it'll be a big learning curve for some of our colleagues who might need to rethink the basis of their discipline. Are you saying here that some disciplines have actually made the university unsafe? What we have to acknowledge is that Various disciplines have had an engagement with the history of colonialism. So there are disciplines we know, um, like anthropology, the law, some areas of science and, say, psychology, some areas of history. Indeed, the area that I work in, museum and heritage-related fields, they've had played a significant role in the history of the university, but also in how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities have been treated and represented. So what does it then mean for us as an institution to reflect on our own disciplines and on the institutions that we engage with, museums, libraries and archives. So there's an opportunity there. And I think we've started at Sydney uh, to do some of that work, reflecting on this. And and I have very productive conversations with colleagues and other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities have conversations with colleagues in disciplines that have had a huge impact on their life. And it can range from things, as I say, like architecture to areas of science to areas of business as well. So the Uluru Statement is actually an invitation to all of us, not just parliamentarians, to take responsibility for improving our institutions. Most people's understanding is, I'm sure, currently framed around the voice to parliament. But the invitation applies equally to other institutions, including universities. Is, is that right? What we need to remember here is statement from the heart, as distinct from other statements that that community have have presented to government. This is a statement that's presented to the people. This is actually um, a, an invitation to for, for communities, um, non-Indigenous communities, to to deal with the history, the legacy of colonialism. So there's a different imperative, a different kind of strategy on the part of the the you know the authors of of the statement from the heart. So yes, I think there's an invitation to step up and do things differently. And I mean, one of the things, I guess, I was in a meeting uh, of other Aboriginal community leaders within the higher education sector and Peter Yu said, uh, he was talking about the Redfern Statement. He said, oh, you know, but it was the next day, the day after the statement, were we ready for that? And so one of the things that stuck with me is, oh, so are we, are we treaty ready? Are we ready? Are we preparing for really being properly engaged with what is a change that's that's starting to occur in the national discussion, but also discussions amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. The recent IATSA summit, one of the key areas of discussion was about, okay, what are our forms, what are our structures of representation that, so that we can engage in community, but also with government. So that universities really should be looking at the statement quite seriously to see how they can respond to it as a form of reconciliation. 
That's right. And we've we've heard from colleagues in law, um, they've made a commitment to, to do just that. There are other fields within the university and across the sector that are engaging with that too. So what does it mean to make a commitment or to engage with it? I think there's one thing to sort of say, oh, we support it. But the difficult step, going back to Peter Yu's comment, is, okay, so what does this mean in practice? Are we ready to implement change? Have we done the work we need with community have we got the right kinds of relationships in, in place in order to do this in a culturally appropriate way? And this is where the concept cultural competence becomes important. In your chapter, you very briefly trace early iterations of the concept in higher education policy back 30 years to the Dawkins reforms, and they, of course, were under the Hawke Labor government. You specifically draw attention to the 1989 National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Education Policy. Now, the policy placed responsibility on universities to ensure educational opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students reinforced rather than suppressed, I guess you'd say, their, and I quote here from the report, unique cultural identity. The idea was further reinforced in the 1998 West Report and finally emerged as a phrase in the 2008 Bradley Review, which is actually our last major review on equity in higher education. And I want to quote from that review. So what Denise Bradley wrote was, higher education providers should ensure that the institutional culture, the cultural competence, of staff and the nature of the curriculum recognises and supports the participation of Indigenous students. It's important for us to acknowledge that there are difficulties around the term cultural competence because you can be certified, but it actually emerges from discussions in the health sector around building capacity amongst the the health profession in order to deal with health issues in communities that had been marginalised in that system. And I think that's sort of a key principle. So um, rather than ha- you know generating this discussion from one place in higher education, it is, as I said, about building capacity to have distinctive conversations around the country, but the principle being that, you know, acknowledging First Nations first and also acknowledging that capability is as much about listening and reflecting as it is about sort of having a, a specific outcome that might be seen as tangible in some sort of way. Tangibility will be in a change to the sector more broadly, but a lot of this is about behaviour as well. Now, in your chapter, you propose three questions which really make us think about the Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander student experience. And I'd like us to discuss those three questions and actually get you to answer them. The first question is how imposing or welcoming Does a university look to an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander student on their first day? This is a question that has been behind some of our engagement, my engagement and colleagues around our next strategy, the 2032 strategy here at the University of Sydney. And it is about how does our physical environment reflect the fact that we're on 
Aboriginal land and what is how is that history and its engagement with the contemporary context reflected in the way that our university landscape is designed and how people use it. So I think that um, immediacy of of being able to come on campus and see a place that's welcoming that that has a cultural kind of connection. Uh, for you or or someone you know is is really important, and uh, so it will mean thinking differently about how we organise spaces, who we get to organise spaces, and it'll mean you know dare I say it some rethinking of the governance around around spaces and their connectivity. So when you say- have we got Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander d- designers and and students involved in committees when we're looking at making decisions about our public environment here at the university? Um, have we got good links with Aboriginal-owned companies that can provide services around building and fabrication? It's not just compartmentalising it so that all of what we're talking about, First Nations First, becomes sort of part of every aspect of the life of the university. Now, the second question, what is the consequence for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders if a place feels impenetrable? The implication there is that people leave. They don't want to stay. So I guess uh, if we're not genuinely accessible then uh, and open, and uh, then, then we know that we're not going to be able to attract people and we're not going to be able to retain them. One of the things we've learnt from our colleagues here at the university, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues, and from students, is that they also go to their family and community to get a sense of a place as well. Is this an okay place to to visit? Are our communities, are our people sort of engaged there? So part of what we need to do, and I've said this in many other fora, is that we need communities to also be, un, you know, able to access and engage with our spaces here in a way that's genuinely open. And that too then is reflected in their responses to questions about that place, the University of Sydney. We have a large footprint in this area here around on Gadigal country, but we do so in other parts of the state as well. Young people around will go to their community and say, would this be a place for me? Is this a place for our mob, our family, our community? And the other thing is it's a loss for the what we call the, the 97%. It's a loss for the people who I think there are many people at the university, staff and students, who want to engage with the history, the, the impact of the legacy of colonialism on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also that has an impact on, that, as I say, the 97%. And I think that many people are engaged and want to understand better how to kind of live with this knowledge, but also to make things different and do it in a way that doesn't doubly burden Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people too. So it's kind of, again, it's an opportunity for people to sort of step up and and learn how what they think is welcoming might not be the case for some young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or even a mature age student uh, for that matter. Now, the third question, how can universities build a culture of open and humble knowledge exchange that benefits every student might seem like a mantra, but it's a principle. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are, you know, quite often the most marginalised in our society. And so we, in the portfolio of the Indigenous Strategy and Services, often say, if you get it right for our mob, you're likely to get it right for 100%. 
still a long way away from, from getting that kind of level of engagement. Now, thinking sector-wide and knowing that cultural competence can take time, what in your view is one thing, you're allowed to if you want, that Australian universities can do immediately that will help reinforce rather than suppress the cultural identity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Well, thanks for that question. And you're right, I'm not going to use one to one thing to respond to that. What we need is a holistic approach to student experience at university. So we need to be looking at the curriculum. We need to be looking at growing cultural competence amongst staff. And we also need to be looking at the connection between communities and the university. Look, Jennifer, it's just been utterly wonderful to speak to you, to take this. Um, I mean, it was sort of a quick romp down cultural competence, but also the question actually of reconciliation really and ensuring that our public universities, actually all our higher education institutions, are freely open to First Nations people of this nation. And I really thank you for talking to me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. These podcasts are interviews with authors of chapters in a new publication, Australian Universities, A Conversation About Public Good. It's edited by Julia Horn and Matthew Thomas and published by Sydney University Press in their policy series. History of University Life Higher Education Seminar has run for over 10 years. It's convened by Julia Horn, Matthew Thomas and Gabby Ramia and addresses issues in higher education, drawing on expertise from across the sector. You can find out about our events by heading over to History of University Life on Twitter handle at HULSeminar. That's all one word. The podcast is supported by the School of Humanities and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney with technical assistance from Peter Adams. The podcast was recorded on Gadigal Country and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. <laughs>